This is an ABC podcast. The labyrinth is an archetypal image that's been found in almost every culture for all of recorded history. My aim was to write uh, a narrative that felt like a meditative walk into and out of a labyrinth. Hello, I'm Claire Nichols, and that is the voice of the Miles Franklin winning author, Amanda Laurie. Amanda is a very deserving winner of this year's prize for her rich and evocative novel, The Labyrinth. And she's my guest today on this bonus episode of The Book Show. Now, The Labyrinth is about a woman, Erica Marsden, who moves to the seaside after her son commits a terrible crime. And Erica has this strange desire to build a stone labyrinth in her garden. Now, I spoke to Amanda before the prize was announced, and as well as chatting about the book, she also shared some really important writing advice. Apparently, all writers should marry dentists. Here's Amanda describing the novel. The novel is a classic pastoral, which is a very, very old form in European literatures and some Asian literatures. And the pastoral is in essence about someone who leaves the big bad city and goes to what is supposedly a purer uh, rural setting and more virtuous rural setting in order to redeem themselves. But of course, as we know, a rural setting um, can sometimes be more, even more challenging than the city. In my mind, and of course it's different for every reader um, because it depends on what the reader brings to it, but in my mind, it's, it's partly about the way in which we go about creating a special place or even a sacred space in our lives. Australians are a very secular culture, but they nevertheless put a lot of time and energy into doing exactly that in many interesting ways, um, not least in, say, gardening. Um, so that's at the core of the novel. The structure of events is, in short, about a woman who goes to live in a small coastal town in order to be near her son who's serving a life sentence in jail. And to console herself, she decides to build a labyrinth, but first she has to find someone to help her build that labyrinth, and the novel is in part about who she finds and the relationship she develops with that person. Tell me more about Erica Marsden, who she is, and I guess the state of mind she's in when she moves to this community. She is in the middle of what she describes as a fugue. She is in a kind of numb state of sorrow, grief, shame even. She wants to cut herself off uh, because of her son's crime. And to absorb herself in some healing process. Why does she choose this place, Garanella? Well, she drives um, up and down the south coast of Sydney. It's a fictional town. It has to be a fictional town because I need to create the landscape I want for the plot. Um, so I need that freedom. But it's clearly an Australian coastal town. She wants to be near the, the new prison that's been built and where her, her son is. And she drives up and down the coast looking for a town that speaks to her. And what is it about this place that, that does speak to her? 
Well, she doesn't know and she doesn't say. I mean, do we ever really know? We go to places and we think, I can't wait to get out of this place. And we go to other places and immediately we feel at home. And this is a, a deeply subjective thing. And I don't spell it out in the novel. She likes its isolation. She likes the old shack behind the sand hills where she can, in a sense, retreat. And she thinks this is the place, this is the place. And she's had a dream about this labyrinth and this little town, as much as any of them do, resembles the landscape of her dream. Can you tell me a bit about Erica's relationship with her son, Daniel? Well, it's, it's fraught because her son is not in a very good way. He's, uh, I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but to begin with, and this is not a prison novel, by the way, um, he's a distraught artist. Um, he's abandoned his work. He's instructed her to burn all his books. He's in a very bad state of mind. And she believes that there is something she can do to psychologically rehabilitate him in prison. And that's what she sets out to do. Are you able to tell me a bit about Daniel's crime, what has happened in his past? Um, well, yes, I don't want to give too much away, but he's uh, been obsessed with the young woman he's in love with and he's painted many, many pictures of her. And when ultimately she leaves him to someone else, he burns down his studio and all the paintings. And in the process, unwittingly, uh, several people in that building die. And so this amounts to criminal negligence and he is given a life sentence. What does it take for Erica to stay loyal to her son? I mean, he's committed this terrible crime and he's really awful to her when she goes to visit him in prison. I mean, is it just a mother's love? Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, this is an everyday phenomenon. Mothers love their children no matter what. And unless the mother is damaged too. And, you know, it's a fundamental aspect of our being. This is what we do. We, we love our children unconditionally. Even when it's made so, so difficult. Uh, Erica wants to build this labyrinth, and I think we better explain what a labyrinth is because it's not a maze. Um, what is a labyrinth? Well, um, a maze is a puzzle with dead ends, and there's a common misapprehension that a maze and a labyrinth are the same. A labyrinth is what they call unicursal. There's one path in and the same path out. But the path is very complex. It loops back on itself. You feel you're going towards the centre. Then you loop back to the rim. And so it can take quite a while, it's, and it's by no means um, a direct journey. But you can't get lost in a labyrinth. You can get lost in a maze. But there's something, there's something kind of meditative about walking a labyrinth, right? The labyrinth is an archetypal image that's been found in almost every culture for all of recorded history, literally thousands of years. It pops up everywhere, sometimes in the form of a simple spiral, sometimes in the form of a very, very complex design, mathematically complex, like the famous labyrinths in French cathedrals and most notably the one at, in Chartres Cathedral, which has been reproduced exactly in Sydney's Centennial Park. Do you think there is a similar quality in the, I guess, that meditative nature of the labyrinth and, and the style in which your story is told? Absolutely. That was my aim. My aim was to write uh, a narrative that felt like a meditative walk 
into and out of a labyrinth. And so to get technical about it, it takes a lot of very careful control to do that. Um, you really cannot afford uh, a loose word or a spare word. It's got the prose has to be very tight and um, you have to kind of meet your mark. You know, actors, when they're acting in front of a camera, have to, to hit their mark every time. Well, in this kind of story, you've got to hit the mark every time or you break the spell. So needless to say, it took many drafts. And I guess a lot of experience at this point. This is your eighth novel in your career. Tell me, Amanda, how much planning goes into your work? Are, are you what we call a, a planner or a, more of a pantser? Uh, no, I don't plan anything. Um, what usually happens is that a, an image or a snatch of dialogue even uh, takes hold of me and won't let me go. And so I sit down to work with it and then it evolves into something or it doesn't. It may just fizzle out and end up in the bottom drawer. But if it develops, it develops. And I don't know where I'm going with it. Sometimes I think I do and then I turn out to be wrong. Um, and that's half the fun, really, not knowing where you're going. I mean, if you knew where you were going when you started, or I, if I knew where I were going when I started, I'd be too bored even to start. Do you remember what it was that was the, the little fragment that started this book off? Uh, it was the idea, the image of the labyrinth, the image of the labyrinth, which seemed to me to capture that um, desire we have to go into a special place, a special zone where we feel somehow we can be our best self. And um, it, it couldn't be a garden for me in terms of the project that was a little too mundane. It needed to be something which was a little bit strange, both strange and familiar, and which could poetically evoke that, that special place. And that would take a lot of effort thought and and um, and teamwork uh, to produce anything unusual about your writing routine that I need to know about anything you have to do to, to have a good day's work I have to clear the day um, I can't work to a routine. I don't know at the beginning of the day whether I'm going to work, work well in the morning or the afternoon. So I have to clear the day. No arrangements. I mean, the American writer Mary McCarthy famously said a writer should never do lunch because that may be the very moment when the whole thing starts to work for you. So I clear the day and see what happens. And I never have a plan for the next day. Uh, I just sit down, see where the energy takes me. Fantastic. And along those lines, have you got a piece of writing advice, the best advice you, you have or you've been given? Probably the best advice I was given was to do with timing because I was fairly young. I showed the, the draft of Camille's Bread to a Sydney writer and editor called Sasha Soldatov, unfortunately no longer with us. And he read it and he showed me three scenes in it and he said, you nail these scenes at this point and then you dribble on for another page. And if you do that, you flatten the tone. And I suddenly realised that what writing is about is not plot, it's not characterisation, it's not any of that. It's about conviction of tone. If you get the tone right, the reader will go with you. They'll follow you 
wherever you want to take them. And to get that tone right, you've got to be really sharp all the time. Sasha used to say, if you're not, the air goes out of the tyres. And I've always remembered that that image. Um, at all costs, uh, the air must not go out of the tyres. And what about your piece of writing advice? Well, it sounds facetious, but what I when I worked in creative writing departments, I used to tell writers, young writers, marry a dentist. And they, they would think I was joking. But it was shorthand for saying time is of the essence when you're writing a long form. And you're going to make a lot of mistakes. You're going to write many drafts. And somehow you have to keep yourself financially afloat. And you really need to plan your life as best you can um, to do that. And it's a small market. There's a lot of well-regarded writers in Australia who can't make a living and not over a lifetime. They might have a few good years. And so you've really got to think about how am I going to do this? Oh, I love that answer. Um, There is an epigraph in your book. Uh, Can you tell me what it is and how does something like that get chosen? Is it always clear to you? Um, It's a quote from Carl Jung, um, the great analytical theorist. Um, The cure for many ills is often to build something. And I came across that um, when I was reading Jung, as I periodically do, and um, it's such practical advice. We've all had that experience that when you're overthinking it and you're fixated on an idea in your head or you're paranoid or you're hysterical, if you get out and do something with your hands, you'll feel better. This this is, you know, well known. Um, And particularly the satisfaction of crafting something. And in a way, one of the sort of subterranean themes of the book is the redemptive power of art. And by art, I don't mean necessarily painting or or sculpture. It can be gardening, it can be sewing, it can be cooking, it can be whatever you do that's creative. Mm. I like That's also her dad's advice too, isn't it? Just go and make something. Yes, her father's a psychiatrist in an asylum and he sets up a workshop. He thinks it's therapeutic and it is. Uh, finally, um, this is a huge question, so I apologise for it in advance, but obviously the Miles is about reflecting Australian life in its many forms. I mean, when you look at your book, Amanda, do you think it has something to say about the country that we live in today? I think it does. I mean, one of the most common responses I get to my work over the years is, oh, it's very Australian. Um, and I find that interesting. Um I, I think, well, what else would it be? Um, although I suppose I could write a novel set in Berlin or something. Um, I like to think that it, it is both very Australian and it transcends the local in its concerns and its preoccupations. One of the characters in it who's European says to the locals, you know, he berates them about their cultural cringe. Um, he says, why are you building a European labyrinth? Why don't you have your own design? Good question. I like it. All right, Amanda, we have done it. It has been such a pleasure to speak to you. Um, Thank you for being so wonderful. Thanks, Claire. Amanda Laurie, the winner of this year's Miles Franklin Award. Her book is called The Labyrinth. I loved it and it's published by text. Congratulations to Amanda and to all of the shortlisted writers for this year's Miles Franklin 
It really was an outstanding list. And if you haven't, do go back and listen to our special episode where we did outline all six of the books and spoke to the shortlisted authors. There's some great new books for your reading list there. I'm Claire Nichols and I'll talk to you soon. Do you want to go to the seaside? I'm not trying to say that everybody wants to go Fell in love at the seaside I handle my charm with time and slide and find Do you want to go to the seaside? I'm not trying to say that everybody wants to go I fell in love at the seaside She handled her charm with time and slide You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.